Welcome to Cato Audio for October 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Michael Clemens talks about immigrants and institutions, Will Ruger tallies up freedom in the 50 states, and Michael Tanner and William Vogeli talk about welfare reform 20 years later. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. This election season has brought into sharp relief some of the different kinds of inequality that uh, Americans face. And here to talk about uh, some myths of inequality, Michael Tanner, senior fellow at the Cato Institute and author of Five Myths About Economic Inequality in America. It's a new Cato policy analysis. And Brink Lindsay, vice president for research at the Cato Institute, author of Human Capitalism. Welcome. Thank you. So to begin here, I'll uh, I'll start with you, Michael Tanner. What is the biggest thing that people misunderstand about economic inequality? And before we get to that, explain what we mean when we're talking about economic inequality. Well, I think it's important that we put it in the context of economic inequality, because that's very different than the sorts of inequality of opportunity, uh, inequality before the law, uh, issues that have long afflicted this country in terms of race and gender and so on. What we're talking here specifically is about the difference in income or wealth or capital accumulation that different people have and whether or not that is a particular problem. Now, uh, in particular, you said uh, capital accumulation. Thomas Piketty wrote this giant book on the subject that many people own but few have read. So uh, well, in a sense, what is his argument? Well, uh, Piketty uh, basically did badly what some other people have done much better, which is to make the argument that in our society we have a growing level of economic inequality. That is, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, or the middle class is essentially staying stagnant or falling further behind, and that this large wealth inequality and income inequality gap is leaving a sort of a new gilded age, a, a society in which people have vastly different opportunities based on the segment of society in which they're born, and that that's sort of immutable and in, in, uh, going forward into the future. And what's wrong with that? Well, there really shouldn't be anything wrong with it. The fact that some people get rich in our society should be something that we celebrate. I, I think people use economic inequality sort of as, as a template for other problems that they're worried about, things like poverty, for example, or things like uh, political uh, problems that we have or crony capitalism, those sorts of issues. I think people sort of lump them together under the idea of economic inequality, and they're actually quite different. Uh, Brink Lindsay, when I hear people complain about economic inequality, it seems to me that they actually are complaining about economic inequality. Well, uh, they think they are, uh, and they are certainly complaining about uh, inequality caused by certain things. Uh, but the fact is that inequality per se has really no relationship with overall economic well-being. The most comprehensive measure of inequality we have is called the Gini coefficient. Uh, it's uh, zero if everybody has exactly the same stuff. It's one if one person in the society has everything and nobody else has anything. And both are terrible outcomes, yeah, both, we should yeah, be clear. Right. So uh, the U.S. Gini coefficient uh, is relatively high for uh, advanced uh, countries. Uh, our Gini coefficient is about the same as Uganda's. Uh, the trick, though, is the U.S. is in the top five in the U.N. Development Index, which pairs uh, 
GDP per capita with years of education and life expectancy, uh, whereas uh, Uganda is somewhere below 150 uh, on the same league table. Uh, so here are two co countries with the same a level of inequality and vastly different levels of human flourishing and therefore vastly different levels of quality of, of social institutions. So just looking at inequality by itself can't tell us much of anything because it's this pattern that is the sum of millions of different uh, uh, causes, some of which are good. So U.S. inequality has been going up in recent decades uh, because of mass immigration, which has brought in a lot of low-skilled, uh, uh, lower-income people that make our inequality stats look worse. Uh, it's also grown because of the triumphs of feminism with more economic opportunities for women. Pair that with assortative mating, and you get ramped up inequality amongst, uh, because now you have uh, d dual high earner families. Uh, so there are good things causing inequality, but there are also bad things causing inequality. Uh, and so what we want to do is we want to take this subject that people are, are focused on uh, and clarify it to aim uh, what we do about this in the direction of dealing with the bad causes of inequality. You know, if you actually look at it over time, you can trace Gini coefficients, for example, with poverty rates, and you find no relationship between the two. Uh, poverty rates go up and down sort of at random compared to Gini coefficients, and they're not really linked. You also can look at the latest uh, Economic Freedom in the World report, which showed pretty distinctly that in countries that have free economies, the pie keeps getting bigger, but it, it doesn't really have much relationship to the amount of inequality, that that stays pretty much the same regardless of the, how the pie is moving up or down. Now, I was about to ask if there is an ideal spot along that Gini coefficient uh, uh, continuum there. And some people might actually think to themselves, well, if everybody has the same stuff, that's, that's, the, that's the outcome we want. Uh, they might think that until they tried to live under a society that tried to live that way. Um, so I think it's, it's often more of a matter of what direction things are going than what the level is. Uh, so no one particularly cared about what the optimal Gini coefficient was during the quarter century after World War II when, uh, when inequality was clearly falling, where everybody's incomes were rising fast, but the people at the bottom's incomes were rising even faster than people's at the top. So that was a situation where all the arrows were going in the right way. Now we have a, a, a situation where fortunes are divided. People at the top have been doing very well in recent decades, people in the middle and the bottom uh, falling relatively behind, even if their absolute material living standards have been going up. The, the directions are different, and I think those are much more important to, to prompting a focus on this issue than, than any particular level. Just look to, to China. In his book, uh, Piketty uh, decries the fact that inequality has increased in China. There's billionaires now in, in China. Of course, he's also lifted some 8 million people out of poverty at the same time. I, mean, I think it's 800 million. 800 right? million. I'm sorry. Just misspoke there. But uh, isn't that a good thing? Uh, if we doubled everybody's income tomorrow, wouldn't that be wonderful in, in theory? How many people would no longer be poor? But, of course, it wouldn't do anything about inequality. If wealthy people, people who have stuff, uh, have been doing well in the last few decades and the uh, middle class or the lower income people have been doing relatively worse, is it uh, one of the myths you point to? You, you say that inequality has never been worse. That is a myth. Why is that? Well, I, I think that one of the things that people who focus on the, the level of inequality miss is that they focus on sort of the, the pre-tax, pre-transfer burden in our economy. We already have a very highly redistributive economy. We tax the rich at a fairly high rate, and we redistribute a great deal to the poor. 
and I think if you take all that into account, what you find is that gap shrinks quite a bit. The poor or the rich come down after they pay taxes, and the poor come up after they receive the benefits from various social welfare programs. The, the instinct uh, that both uh, people on the left and on the right, uh, that libertarians share with uh, conservatives and and uh, and liberals is for everyone to think as soon as we start talking about inequality we're just talking about what markets are doing so if inequality is going up that means that uh, capitalism is running amok and producing these invidious differences uh, so conservatives libertarians will defend this inequality say okay it's the product of free market forces and it's a meritocracy and therefore yay for the one percent because they're the most productive uh, whereas uh, uh, people on the left will see rising inequality as just clear evidence that obviously markets have this natural uh, inegalitarian tendency and we're seeing it play out uh, because they're not being sufficiently restrained whereas in fact something else that's going on is government policies that are actually exacerbating inequality if you look at who's in the top one percent or top 0.1 percent there's a lot of doctors and lawyers they benefit from occupational licensing uh, there's lots of people in finance. Uh, they benefit from uh, uh, too-big-to-fail subsidies. Uh, so you can see a lot of people at the high end uh, who are uh, there not because they are market innovators, but because they are, to some extent or another, crony capitalists. Uh, and so the sort of knee-jerk defense of people on the right of current levels of inequality and the knee-jerk assumption on the part of the left that uh, inequality is always market-driven uh, both need to be reexamined. And it's on the bottom end of the scale, too. If you look at uh, why people are poor, a lot, a lot has to do with government policies, everything from our criminal justice system that leaves people unemployable because they have criminal records to occupational licensure to a failed government school system. We know that things like uh, whether or not your parents are educated are, large, are a huge determining factor on whether or not you will go to school and complete school and move on. Uh, we know that uh, whether or not you, uh, there are men who are marriageable in an area has a lot to do with out-of-wedlock birth and the, and the problems that stem from that. These are all things that basically stem from government policy. They're not problems of inequality per se, but they are things that lead to uh, outcomes that we sort of attribute to inequality. That is, that is to say keeping people in those lower income bands. That's right. That makes it harder for people to rise out of poverty. We really do have a poverty problem in this country. What we don't have is an economic inequality problem. So I would like to, to the extent that you think that there is a distinction to be made here, uh, when people talk about inequality, they sometimes conflate two different things. One is income and the other is wealth. And uh, can you talk, speak to what that distinction is and how important it is? So income is how much you make every year. It's the flows of resources uh, into your life. Uh, it, uh, wealth is your actual holdings, the stock of, uh, of valuable stuff you own. Uh, most people's wealth is, um, is, is, most of it is the equity in their home uh, or uh, stock ownership. Uh, wealth has always been much less evenly distributed than income. Uh, everybody works, uh, but a lot of people don't have any net worth at all. Uh, so uh, the trends in wealth inequality and income inequality have been rather different, although both have been on the rise in recent decades, apparently. Uh, measurement problems are difficult. Uh, one interesting thing that's come out of this examination of the rise of wealth inequality is some evidence pointing to the fact that it's really being driven by rising housing prices. And those rising housing prices are in turn being driven by increasingly restrictive uh, zoning laws that make it harder and harder to build in the cities that everybody wants to live in. Uh, so that demand is channeled into skyrocketing prices rather than into more houses being built. Uh, so here is an another example of where uh, the, the charge to let's do something about inequality 
inequality leads to all of this uh, uh, economic investigation, and we're finding the main culprit uh, in wealth inequality is actually government intervention. And there's a long history of this. You can go all the way back to the very first zoning laws, which are actually race-based, uh, particularly in Baltimore and uh, Chicago and Atlanta, cities like that, where they were designed specifically to create on, uh, ghettos, in, in effect, to segregate African Americans. And then the redlining that went out after that, with a specific government approval of the of the redlining, and, and again trying to keep. Uh, African Americans and others in certain neighborhoods that had lower property values, and uh, and that's continuing on today. Multiple generations have been able to hand down wealth among white populations that haven't been able to do the same thing among minority populations. One more sort of uh, global point: uh, Why do we care about money inequality? Because we think money is a proxy for well-being. Um, there's another way to measure well-being. Uh, we have this new field of happiness research. Uh, you can take it with grains or lumps or uh, or carloads of salt, uh, but it's there, uh, and that literature is showing that happiness inequality has been falling in recent decades. So. Uh, the question of whether we should be uh, concerned just generally with the fact of, uh, of an increase in inequality is even further uh, uh, undercut uh, by, by that literature. Again, people are going to talk about inequality whether we think they should be using that term or not. Uh, and so what I think is most important is to steer the inequality debate into those areas where rising inequality is being produced by bad causes that, that everyone can agree uh, uh, should be remedied. Um, so if, if you have policies that are simultaneously uh, accelerating economic growth and worsening inequality, then you're faced with a trade-off, equity versus efficiency. Uh, okay, we can reduce inequality, but we have to reduce growth too. But if you can find government policies that simultaneously worsen growth and worsen inequality, then there's no trade-off and you get, to, you get a two-for-one deal. And uh, therefore, you should be able to build coalitions based on bringing left and right together around uh, a common agenda. That's one of the things that I find truly amazing is that so many people who decry inequality then turn to the government and say, well, government will remedy inequality, when government is the cause of so much inequality, that, that so often the people who are, that we sort of look to and say, well, isn't it terrible, un isn't it unfair? that they got rich, got rich largely because of their government contacts, because they were able to cash in on, on contracts or no, too big to fail or bail out of this or bail out of that, that in many cases it's the government itself that exacerbated the problem, sort of, you know, broke people's legs and giving them a crutch now. So that's, you know, from the people who feel the burn uh, will say that the plutocracy has taken over government and rigged everything in its favor. Therefore, let's give more power to government. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, when you draw a distinction between uh, wealth inequality and income inequality, we only really tax income. Yes. Uh, so it, it seems like Piketty, that's, it's Piketty, almost a non-starter to try to tax wealth. Piketty uh, uh, proposed a global uh, wealth tax, and uh, for all the uh, sort of adulation that his book pr provoked, there was like zero enthusiasm for his policy proposal. So uh, that's, uh, that's a, uh, even in a, in a world where taxation rates are very high, going after people's wealth is, uh, is, a, is a tough political uh, And let's, so let's recall task. that in many attempts to try and tax the rich, uh, they're actually going to miss the rich and hit the poor. Uh, 
You know, the, the people who are, who are rich do have to do one of two things with their wealth, literally. Very few people of them are burying it out behind their mansion in, in a cigar box or something. They're, they're either saving it, in which case that money is available for investment and, and creation of new jobs and things of that nature, or they're spending it, in which case they're giving it to non-rich people for, for goods and services, uh, by and large. So what you take away from them is money that's not going to be used somewhere else in the economy. Two of the other myths that you point to in your paper, Five Myths, about economic inequality in America. Uh, myth number four, more inequality means more poverty. And myth number five, inequality distorts the political process. Let's talk about those in turn. Well, that's what we were talking about at the beginning, the idea that if you check the Gini coefficient against poverty rates, you really don't find anything measuring up there. That, that as inequality has gone up, uh, you have seen poverty rates remain roughly steady over the last, uh, say, 50 years, even though we've seen rising inequality. Uh, even if you and if you look at sort of the alternative poverty measures that take into account the full measure of redistribution, take into account non-cash benefits like housing and food stamps and health care and so on, what you actually see is declining poverty rate even as even as inequality has increased. Yeah, it's it's really easy to see if you look at say China. China at the outset of the uh, market reforms, everybody was poor, very equal. Uh, then. Uh, flash forward a few decades, and you have billionaires, you have a large middle class, uh, you have a large non-poverty-stricken working class, and so much more uh, uh, any, uh, income inequality than you had before, but also drastically lower poverty. Okay. With respect to the political process, having watched this election year unfold, one would be forgiven for thinking that uh, inequality has distorted our political process. Something has, but but it's not necessarily inequality. I mean, there, there's sort of this myth out there of this conspiracy theory that the rich all get together, I guess, maybe at, at Davos, and they, uh, they then plot the political future. But the idea that, uh, that uh, the Koch brothers and Tom Styron and George Soros uh, and Sheldon Adelman all share a common political goal is kind of silly. I mean, you, you, they have the same differing viewpoints and the same differing goals of politics as everyone else. Yeah, that's, that's the bottom line, is if uh, the very rich were politically homogeneous or ideologically homogeneous, you might have a more of a capture problem, but they aren't. Uh, so uh, that's why we don't see uh, any kind of good connection between rising inequality and and uh, sort of a steering of, of public policies in a pro-plutocracy direction. Uh, it's, it's hard to see that, uh, to see uh, if, if the idea is that uh, capitalism run amok causes inequality, therefore the problem is uh, plutocrats will take over the system, they will uh, uh, legislate laissez-faire and we'll just get inequality that's, uh, that's uh, insuperable. Uh, well, that's clearly just not a model of what's happening in the world because we, the plutocrats, if they have taken over the system, clearly aren't driving it in a laissez-faire direction. Often they are using the political system to entrench their uh, favorable position in society and to uh, funnel uh, money from taxpayers and consumers uh, to them uh, via public policy. Uh, but uh, again, there's just a lot of uh, diversity within uh, the economic elite. And so, yes, people pay more attention to the elite, but the elite does not speak with one voice. President Jeb Bush could tell you the limits of the politics of money. A hundred million dollars later. So, um, to the extent that we're worried about people who are not fully participating in the U.S. economy and we're not as worried about inequality as a, as a concept or as it, as it plays out in America, what are some of the policies that are really, uh, to hear uh, 
uh, Brink tell it, the low-hanging fruit guarded by dragons. Uh, so what are, what are some of the, the policies that should be uh, simply easily changed with some measure of public support that simply aren't being changed? Yeah, again, uh, the policy prescriptions depend on what dimension of inequality you're talking about. If you're talking about crony capitalism at the top, uh, then, uh, then winding down excessive patent and copyright protection, winding down uh, occupational licensure, for, especially for doctors and lawyers and high-end professionals, uh, can result in a reduction in high-end inequality. Uh, um, if, and a reduction in crony capitalism is what we're really concerned about, uh, a juster uh, economic order. If you're worried about poverty, then there's all kinds of ways in which government's currently got its boot on the neck of the poor, and it should uh, move its boot, uh, should provide better schools, should provide uh, <clears throat> decent policing that's non-abusive and that actually protects neighborhoods rather than, uh, than oppresses them. Uh, it should unwind mass incarceration, which has uh, made life so difficult for so many. Uh, not just the people in uh, the cages, but their families and relatives. Uh, so there's, depending on the aspect of inequality uh, uh, we're thinking about, there's very different things that can be done, but there are, uh, there are policy alternatives aplenty to deal with all of these genuinely problematic aspects of the inequality issue. And I think this is an area where you could find broad bipartisan agreement. I mean, I do think, for example, there is now a coalition across left and right for criminal justice reform. I think you could put something together for education reform. You can look at housing. As Brink mentioned earlier, the zoning laws and land use laws largely benefit people who have houses now at the cost of making housing more expensive for people who don't. Uh, I, I think that we could look at the entire area of job creation in the inner city and how we can bring more jobs to those neighborhoods that, that lack them. And there's something particularly wrong when you look at uh, was it Sandy, Sandy Point in, in Baltimore, the area where Freddie Gray died, uh, and see there's not a single, not even a fast food joint in that area, not a single supermarket, nothing like that. Clearly there's something gone wrong in that neighborhood. Yeah, and on the high end, right now, uh, just a sort of a slightly premature plug, uh, I'm writing a book with uh, political scientist at Johns Hopkins named Steve Tellis about uh, policy reforms that can simultaneously improve economic growth and reduce uh, inequality by reducing the rents that are being uh, funneled through the political process to people at the top. What of, uh, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, so much of the wealth that's held by Americans is home equity. Uh, what of the idea of moving uh, zoning from cities and neighborhoods to state capitals? Uh, I think that moving the decision-making is an important part of, of opening up possibilities for reform. The, prob the problem right now is that zoning decisions are made so locally that the concentrated benefits, dis dis dispersed costs, diffuse costs problem is just incredible there uh, because you have a tiny gaggle of uh, people worried about NIMBY issues, not in my backyard issues, who are bearing all the costs of development uh, and who are organized, know who they are, uh, and zoning decisions are made one at a time with very few participants in any one decision. All the other people who have a stake, uh, even business interests in the city that have a stake in, in faster development aren't present at those one-at-a-time decisions, much less all the people in other parts of the country that would like to move there. Uh, so moving decision-making away from this intensely localistic to, to some place where they have a broader picture of what the effects are 
uh, is, I think, a step in the right direction. I think I think people often misunderstand the zoning problem, too. People think of it as, well, I don't want a hog farm put in next door to my house. Uh, but one of the most costly and kind of silly uh, restrictions is put on is actually parking restrictions. Uh, the requirement that you have to have one parking space or one and a half parking spaces for every apartment you build. In a city like San Francisco, that adds thousands of dollars to the cost of an apartment. Then low-income people who might like to live in a much smaller apartment. I spoke with uh, Vanessa Calder recently about the, the example of Seattle, where tiny apartments have been zoned out of existence. That, that's right. It's, it's very often things of that nature, uh, sort of luxury items, not necessarily, as say, keeping the smelting plant or the hog farm from, from locating next to you. Gentlemen, we'll leave it there. Michael Tanner, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, author of Five Myths About Economic Inequality in America. That's a new Cato policy analysis available now. And Brink Lindsay, vice president for research at the Cato Institute, is author of Human Capitalism and a forthcoming book dealing with some related subjects. You can keep up to date on all this at our website, cato.org. In the latest edition of the Freedom in the 50 States report, co-author William Ruger discusses the findings. The headline statistics shouldn't surprise anyone, though. New Hampshire ranked first among states for combined social and economic freedom, and New York came in last. Ruger spoke on Capitol Hill. So what is the Freedom Index? It's the most comprehensive study and ranking of freedom in the 50 states. And indeed, it's the first to examine both economic freedom and freedoms that affect your personal lives. It looks at three key areas in doing so. It looks at fiscal policy, regulatory policy, and personal freedom or freedom from paternalism. Uh, it's up to 287 pages and includes all kinds of neat information, statistics, and most importantly for the social science and all of us, analysis. So what's the purpose uh, of the Freedom Index? Why do we do this? Well, we want to measure and compare the American states on how their public policies affect individual freedoms in the economic, social, and personal spheres. Now, of course, freedom is an end in itself. It's valuable for its own sake. Uh, and that's one reason why we want to look at this and examine what is the status of this important moral principle in the states. But it also has a lot of dynamic effects. And this will help us investigate questions uh, about the relationship between freedom and outcomes such as economic growth uh, and freedom and things like internal migration. So it has a lot of different uses, uh, both from the analytical side and the public policy side. So we think it's useful for, for legislators, for example. Uh, legislators can use this to know how their states are doing uh, and where they stand relative to the other states in the union. But they could also use it to identify areas of improvement, to say, well, look, there are 40 other states that are doing it this way and seeming to have success with that policy. Why can't we? Okay. Now, citizens can use this to hold legislators accountable. That's an important thing. And that means that they have to be informed about the status of freedom in their state. And this will help them do that. Reporters can use this to gather data on how their state compares to, say, other states in the union. Citizens can use this if they think about moving or businesses when they think about making decisions about where they ought to go uh, relative to that regulatory environment that so affects what they do. So there are lots of different ways that people can use this. 
Now, why study states? Uh, I mean, some of what I've already talked about relates to that. But I want to make a kind of broader point, uh, which is that we should study states because the American federal system still allows state governments fairly wide discretion over a range of important policy issues. So federalism is still alive, despite it being in decline, basically since the beginning of our country's history, but especially since the New Deal. So what I would say is that we should study states because federalism allows states to innovate and a lot of the action is actually happening in politics at the state level. And there are a lot of prominent examples of this. So while we have a lot of gridlock here in Washington, a lot of polarization, lots of things are getting done at the state level. So think about criminal justice and policing reform, an important issue that's transpartisan today. You have states like New Mexico, Nebraska, and New Hampshire that have passed civil asset forfeiture reform. Or think about issues uh, on the fiscal side, where many, many states have tried to get a handle on the most recent Great Recession and how to innovate uh, to deal with some of the fiscal problems that have resulted. Or marijuana policies, where you've seen Colorado, Washington, and Alaska changing their marijuana regimes. Or education policy, where Nevada has experimented with ESAs. Not to mention regulatory reforms like the right to work laws passed in Wisconsin, Indiana, and Michigan. So you've seen a lot of policy innovation at the state. So it's important to see what's going on out there. And we provide the data to do that kind of analysis. Another reason why we should study states is because state governments have to compete with each other, both for citizens and the tax base. Why? In part because migration is as American as apple pie and Chevrolet. Right? We're a country of people who have moved, and we continue to do so with pretty robust internal migration. I should also mention uh, one thing in relationship to why we study states is to mention Justice Louis Brandeis. So remember, he talked about how states are laboratories of democracy. And so one great thing about states is they can experiment with different policy regimes and see how it works without having a one-size-fits-all approach that if it goes badly, uh, it's bad for everyone, where if with the states, you could have a state experiment, see how it goes. Other states can either copy it or they could uh, choose not to if the policy goes bad. At the Cato Institute's conference marking 20 years since the signing of welfare reform by President Clinton, Cato's Michael Tanner and William Vogeli of the Claremont Review of Books discussed the effects of that reform. First up, Michael Tanner. 20 years ago, Bill Clinton signed welfare reform. It was actually the third attempt. There was a couple of previous attempts to pass welfare reform that he actually vetoed or threatened to veto, and then finally ended up with the, the bill that he did sign. And I think one of the things we failed to remember is just how controversial this bill was. Uh, there was protests, even as he signed it. There were people outside the White House who were protesting in chants of one, two, three, four, stop the war on the poor. Uh, three members of his own administration resigned in protest uh, because he was signing this law. And there were all manner of dire predictions. Uh, the New Republic wrote an article and they talked about how there'd be family breakup and wages would decline and there'd be millions of people thrown into poverty. There was a very famous study by a think tank in town that said a million additional children 
would be cast into poverty if this law passed. Uh, it, it was very controversial uh, when it passed. And we saw, as I mentioned, that people on the, the left were sort of predicting all sorts of terrible things would happen. And on the right, people were talking about this being a new era, that the entire framework of social welfare policy had shifted. We were moving away from welfare to work, for example. That we were changing the attitude of something that kept people in dependence, the, uh, the ideas that Charles Murray had talked about in losing ground, that we were moving away from that entire ethic of welfare into something very different uh, that was going to reduce spending, move people off the rolls, get people into work, give people a chance of self-sufficiency, and radically change what the dole meant in America. The reality, I think, is that neither one of those predictions came true. And one of the important things, I think, to recognize is that welfare reform touched on a very small portion of what welfare or the social welfare safety net in the United States actually is. I mean, if federal, we, welfare reform actually handled what was then Aid for Families with Dependent Children, AFDC, it's now TANF, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, and a couple of other small programs. But there are actually more than 100 federal anti-poverty programs uh, of various sizes and kinds. 70 of those programs actually provide benefits to individuals. They either give them cash benefits or more commonly what's called in-kind benefits, which is something like housing or food stamps or health care or something where the people don't actually receive cash but receive some other kind of benefit based on whether or not they are low income. Uh, that's a huge federal social welfare bio, uh, bureaucracy, and it spends a lot of money. Uh, those 100-plus uh, anti-poverty programs cost the federal government last year about $695 billion. And if you throw in state and local spending, which is another $280 billion, we're close to spending a trillion dollars every year fighting poverty in this country. You can't say that we don't try, at least in terms of dollars. If you're measuring inputs into fighting poverty, we have a fairly high number of inputs. We're spending a lot of money fighting poverty in this country. Now, I do want to keep this in perspective, though, because whenever I start talking about how much money we're spending fighting poverty, people get the idea that somehow that's where the money is in Washington, that it's all being wasted on poor people, and you get a lot of very negative press around this. Some of the you know, right-wing radio talk show hosts love to go crazy about these numbers every time I point them out. So I just want to keep it a little bit in, in context here, that the amount of money we spend on welfare for the poor is dwarfed by the amount of money we spend on welfare for other people. The amount of money we spend on welfare for the elderly, for example, is far, far greater than the amount of money we spend on welfare for the poor. And then there's corporate welfare, over $100 billion a year we spend on corporate welfare, which somehow doesn't upset people the same way that welfare for the poor upsets people. And of course, then there's welfare that's hidden in the military budget, 
uh, as well. Uh, we need to keep all these other types of welfare sort of in context or in mind uh, as we move forward and we start talking about welfare. The reasons for reforming welfare are not simply a matter of we're spending a lot of money on it. The reasons for reforming welfare has much more to do with are we actually helping the poor? It's not just a question of money. Because if you want to save money, if that's all we care about is let's reduce the spending on programs, there's a lot of other places we can go to just reduce money. And now, also from our Welfare Reform Conference, William Vogeli of the Claremont Review of Books discussed the underlying premises of the current debate over welfare. Not quite two years after the law we're discussing today was enacted, the New York Times ran a front-page story denouncing the state of Idaho for having reduced its welfare roles by 77% over the preceding three and a half years. According to one academic expert quoted in the article, Idaho has effectively made itself the worst place in the nation to be poor. Uh, that is and was a contestable assertion, but also a clarifying formulation. The clear implication is that the goal of welfare policy is to make a state the best place in the nation to be poor and a nation the best place in the world to be poor. The Times argued that the hallmark of a jurisdiction where it's bad to be poor is that government strictly limits the amount spent on welfare programs and the number of people enrolled in them. It follows that increasing welfare spending and enrollment is the key to making a place good for the poor. It's possible, however, to stipulate the overriding goal of helping the poor, but then also arrive at a different conclusion about that imperative's meaning. An alternate account would hold that the best place in the nation to be poor is the one where you're most likely to be poor briefly as opposed to securely and respectably. Two attributes that would make it easy to get out of poverty and hard to fall into it are, one, a dynamic economy with numerous opportunities to begin and switch careers or start and expand enterprises, and two, powerful social norms that offer the poor sympathy and encouragement qualified by the tough love that reproaches people for choices, habits, or dispositions that increase the likelihood they or their children will become poor and reduce the likelihood they or their children will escape poverty. In theory, these two approaches to optimizing the poor's circumstances and prospects seem mutually exclusive. In practice, America has tried to synthesize them. Much of this ambiguity reflects the nature of the American experiment, which values both inclusiveness and individualism. E pluribus unum and don't tread on me. But a good part of it, I think, also reflects the character of Franklin Roosevelt, the American most responsible for launching and shaping our welfare state. Like Bill Clinton, FDR rejected false dichotomies so emphatically as to call into question whether he acknowledged the existence of true dichotomies. During the 1932 election, his advisors presented him with two drafts 
of a campaign statement, one advocating lower tariffs and the other calling for higher tariffs. Roosevelt's response was to turn to the speechwriters and say, weave them together, boys. So on the one hand, uh, President Roosevelt could declare in his 1935 State of the Union address that continued dependence on relief induces a spiritual and moral disintegration fundamentally destructive to the national fiber. He went on to call welfare a narcotic and subtle destroyer of the human spirit. On the other, he could introduce the second Bill of Rights in his 1944 State of the Union address. The eight entitlements it endorses can be divided in half. The first four concern individuals' efforts to fend for themselves, while the second are prerequisites for a decent life whose possession, in FDR's telling, has no obvious relation to individuals' productive activities. You're on your own, that is, when it comes to food, clothing, recreation, and feeling useful. You are not on your own with respect to housing, medicine, economic security, and education. A functionally and morally adequate safety net will guarantee these necessities to all, whether or not it appears they are willing or able to fend for themselves. There isn't much point, after all, in declaring a right to welfare benefits unless you also insist that the needs of some give them a decisive claim on the wealth of others. The welfare state we've built to pursue these objectives now accounts for nearly three-fourths of federal government outlays. The Office of Management and Budget's Human Resources Superfunction comprises these six functions meant to achieve the goals FDR laid out. I include in today's discussion programs often inaccurately described as middle-class entitlements, such as Social Security and Medicare, because assisting those who are not poor is a feature of America's welfare state, not a bug. As the principal architect of our social insurance system, Wilbur Cohn famously said, a program that deals only with the poor will end up being a poor program. In his view, the political viability of welfare programs, of the, of the whole panoply of the welfare state, required dispersing benefits throughout society rather than concentrating them on the poor. The political logic is to blacken the sky with crisscrossing dollars, rendering plausible that which is mathematically impossible, that an enormous but still finite amount of wealth can be taxed and transferred in such a way that nearly every household winds up as a net importer rather than a net exporter of governmentally redistributed income. In 2014, the federal government spent $7,933 per American on human resources programs. Adjusted for inflation and population growth, that figure was twice as high as federal spending for those purposes in 1989, three times as high as in 1974, nearly four times as high as in 1971, and five times as high as in 1968. In our federal system, state and local governments also pursue the objectives laid out in the second Bill of Rights. 
assuming these Census Bureau numbers were at least as high in 2014 as in 2013, government at all levels spent about $10,500 per American on welfare state programs, broadly defined, roughly $42,000 for a family of four. Uh, this calculation excludes, by the way, state and local government outlays on education, which amounted to $877 billion in 2013. In addition to money the government spends to promote the goals defined in the second Bill of Rights, it also fashions tax incentives that subsidize private spending for such purposes. Federal tax exemptions, for example, promote medical insurance and care, home ownership, and economic security, costing the federal government nearly a half a trillion dollars in foregone tax revenue. Furthermore, a significant, though harder to quantify, part of the welfare state consists of government enactments that do not entail public spending or tax subsidies, but the use of carrots and sticks to get some, some citizens to assist others. Examples would include the Americans with Disabilities Act, minimum wage laws, rent control laws, and regulations requiring real estate developers to incorporate low-income housing into new apartments and subdivisions. In the 72 years since President Roosevelt proclaimed the Second Bill of Rights then, efforts to realize its goals have grown dramatically. Over the past half century, they have become American government's central concern. For the past 45 years, the proportion of Americans who are poor, or nearly poor, has fluctuated in a narrow band from one-sixth of the national population when the economy is strong to one-fifth when it's weak. It's hard to see how it would be less effectual to take the trillions of dollars now directed through a bewildering array of government endeavors and simply distribute the money randomly by taking sacks of $20 bills up in helicopters, for example. Do immigrants pose a threat to American institutions? At a Cato Institute conference on immigration economics, Michael Clements, a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development, discussed his work on the overhyped and understudied question. Two economists, one American and one British, are uh, discussing the reasons that they support a large government intervention to restrict uh, immigration. Uh, two big reasons, wages and institutions. The American Economist says it is obvious that immigrant competition must reduce wages. His British counterpart, I entirely agree with you that it must diminish their wages. Nothing can be more fallacious than the attempts to make out that there is any compensation to those whose labor is displaced. But not just that, there's a second reason they support this intervention, and it's institutions. Maybe a, a bigger question of, of uh, the effect of immigration on the uh, culture and institutions that underpin the entire economy. The American rights, such an admixture of peoples would be to the degradation of the superior civilization without any commensurate improvement of the lower. 
And his British interlocutor responds, only a temporary good is done to the migrants while a permanent harm is done to a more civilized and improved portion of mankind. Now, these are uh, arguments that might be very familiar to you because they're, they're, uh, they're around all the time. I want to point out a few things about this conversation. The, the first is that it's happening in 1869 uh, between uh, the biggest of the big shot economists. Uh, the American is Henry George. The British is John Stuart Mill. And they were arguably uh, the leading economists in each of their countries uh, at the time. Uh, the second, oh, and, the, and the policy intervention they're discussing, uh, is a total and complete shutdown of immigration by ethnically Chinese people to the United States. Uh, the second thing I want to point out is that uh, neither of them offers any evidence for these assertions that they're making uh, uh, very uh, confidently about the effects of, uh, of migration or the effects of restriction. The, the third is that they got what they wanted. Uh, 13 years later, there was, in fact, a total and complete shutdown of uh, immigration to the United States by ethnically Chinese people from any nation, and it lasted 70 years. Uh, and the fourth thing is that there wasn't any evidence then, uh, nor is there any evidence now, that that policy achieved the goals that these uh, very smart people uh, confidently claimed for it. There's no evidence that Chinese exclusion raised American wages. There's no evidence that the uh, uh, proper functioning of the US uh, economic institutions depended upon Chinese exclusion. Uh, a few years ago, I wrote a paper called Trillion Dollar Bills on the Sidewalk, uh, trying to explicitly to nudge economists to look more at this, uh, this other and more neglected uh, question of the, the effect of migration on, uh, on the broader wealth of nations. And it's a, it's a very simple paper. It, uh, it just says, look, now that we have pretty good evidence that the productivity of a worker depends critically on location, that is, the economic productivity of exactly the same worker, even performing exactly the same task, can vary by an order of magnitude depending on what country they're in. That has a, a remarkable implication, which is that natural and policy barriers to labor mobility between countries could be enormously costly. Uh, for example, there are estimates that uh, the, uh, barriers to the movement of just 5% of the current population of developing countries to developed countries cost the world economy trillions of dollars a year, more collectively than all remaining barriers to trade and all remaining barriers to international capital flows. Very large uh, uh, effects. Uh, there has been a response to these uh, uh, claims in the literature, and it's what Lamp Pritchett of Harvard and I call the new economic case for migration restrictions. And it focuses on these uh, exact same uh, arguments in the second point that uh, George and Mill were talking about in 1869. Uh, it's, uh, it's been the subject of discussion by another British and another American economist uh, uh, many, many generations later. Uh, so the idea is that People from poor countries, when they migrate, don't just experience higher productivity themselves. They reduce the productivity, in general, of the people around them in the place that they arrive by spreading bad productivity to those people. And for that reason, uh, I'm not making this up. In the literature, it's called the epidemiological model. Uh, Raquel Fernandez of, of NYU has an authoritative handbook chapter on this subject, and that's what she calls it. And the, the, the analogy is, is, uh, is to disease. Uh, so here uh, is a British economist, Paul Collier, in a book three years ago, making this case. Uh, I don't want to uh, 
I want you to know that I'm not mischaracterizing it, so I'll just read it if you don't mind my reading it. Migrants are essentially escaping from countries with dysfunctional social models. The cultures or norms and narratives of poor societies, along with their institutions and organizations, stand suspected of being the primary cause of their poverty. Uncomfortable as it may be, migrants bring their, cult their culture with them, with the potential risk that the social model of the migrant destination countries will become blended in such a way that damagingly dilutes its functionality. So an American economist, uh, George Borjas, reviewing this book in the Journal of Economic Literature last year, uh, puts together a little model of how the epidemiological model might bring about uh, the result of canceling the gains to the, 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 the simple economic gains to migration. And he parameterizes uh, with lambda the fraction of low country total factor, of poor country low total factor productivity that comes along with migrants. If lambda were equal to 0.75, Borjas writes, that is 75% uh, of the uh, bad total factor productivity from poor countries comes along with migrants embodied in them, the net gains to global labor mobility become negative because now the entire world's workforce is largely operating under the inefficient organizations and institutions that were previously isolated in the South but have now spilled over to the North. Uh, he concludes the article with this uh, diamond of rhetoric. Beware of social engineers who promise the existence of trillion dollar bills on a mythical sidewalk at the end of the rainbow. Those promises are often based on flimsy modeling and inadequate evidence. Now, I'm not sure uh, which researcher he's referring to. Uh, it, uh, it sounds like quite a, a, a deluded and, and naive uh, person who must cut uh, quite a pathetic uh, figure. But what makes this statement even more remarkable is, is that he, he doesn't offer any actual evidence of this effect, much like uh, Henry uh, George and, uh, and John Stuart Mill generations ago. Uh, it, it's a conjecture that the effect uh, might happen. And stepping back from maybe unfortunate rhetoric like this, uh, we can't rule this out. And it, and it is plausible that at some, there must be some uh, very large stock of migrants from poor countries or uh, very large flows of migrants from poor countries that would be associated with a change of, of institutions. That's, not, uh, that's certainly not implausible or impossible. The question is, where, where, would, that, uh, where would that rate uh, lie exactly? And uh, it, it's, it's remarkable to see a, a, an evidence-free discussion of that in 1869, and then an evidence-free discussion continuing 146 years later, as if nothing from which we could learn anything had happened uh, in between. So what, what Lan Pritchett and I do in our paper is say, well, what's the, what's the simplest way we could start uh, to look at the evidence on this question? There is quite a variance across countries in the stock of poor country migrants there, that is migrants born in countries with low total factor productivity. Um, is there an association between that stock and lower levels or lower growth of total factor productivity? We don't see any evidence uh, uh, in, in variance across the stocks that we that we observe uh, of a relationship between those stocks and uh, lower levels or lower growth of total factor productivity. Although climate change is real and partially man-made, it is becoming obvious that far more warming has been forecast than has occurred. 
and some of the catastrophic impacts can be shown to be implausible or impossible. The newly revised and updated paperback edition of Lukewarming, The New Climate Science That Changes Everything by Cato scholars Pat Michaels and Paul C. Knappenberger includes updates in science and policy following the accords reached at the 2015 United Nations Climate Change Conference in Paris. This analysis is an invaluable source for those looking to be more informed about climate change and the data behind it. Lukewarming is available at Cato.org and other retailers. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.